When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on addressing childhood obesity. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this hour, we're just going to learn about the effects of obesity on health, real quick little snippet, and then identify best practices for addressing obesity in childhood. This was based in part on the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario Best Practice Guideline for addressing obesity in children. However, there's a lot of other research and stuff in there from the CDC and uh, National Institute of Health that the links are in the power in the PDF. And if I do believe I put the PDF in your class, if I didn't, I will do that after class. So you can click on those links and look at the actual research. What are our functions? And we were talking about that a little bit before class started today. We need to engage people, engage children, caregivers, and communities. We can engage people when they are in our office. If you use a biopsychosocial approach to counseling, then you're probably already going to be talking a little bit about nutrition. Now, knowing, again, put that little aside out there, that since we are not registered dietitians, we cannot make nutritional prescriptions. However, we can refer to dietitians and we can educate. We can refer people to websites about what healthy eating looks like. We can educate people about what a macronutrient is. That's not making a dietary prescription. That's providing education. That being said, we want to make sure, and you've heard me say this a million times, that people are eating a healthy diet in order to make sure their body has the building blocks to make the hormones and neurotransmitters that make us feel happy and energetic and increase our libido and do all that kind of stuff. It's important. Nutrition is important. But nutrition is only one part of obesity prevention. <clears throat> we want to engage caregivers when they come in. And a lot of times we are working, a lot of us work with adults, so we are working with those caregivers. The cool thing is that if we have, if we're working with mom, for example, and we start talking about healthier nutrition to address, help address depression and lethargy and, you know, hypothyroid or whatever, then we can also say, all right, 
Now I want you to start thinking about this and maybe in order to help you make these changes, encourage your family to jump on the bandwagon and encourage your family to start making some changes. We're not talking huge things. If they need to make huge changes in their life, they're going to be under the care of a physician or a registered dietitian anyway. But if they say, yeah, you know, I was thinking about cutting out some of those highly processed foods, we can say, well, score. Then encourage your family to do the same so you're not watching them sit over there and eat white bread and ding-dongs and feeling left out. We can get caregivers involved. We can educate caregivers about the importance of preventing childhood obesity. And when we get to it, we're going to talk about the difference between uh, body positivity and addressing obesity. And I'm not body shaming anybody by any means in this, in this presentation. What I want people to be is healthy and happy. And, you know, that comes in different shapes and sizes to an extent. We want to engage communities through task forces for improving health and wellness in the community. And we'll, we're going to see the effects of health and wellness. But if you think about it, you know, it's not brain surgery. If you think if somebody is of a healthy weight, then they're not experiencing some of the health consequences of obesity, which means they're probably going to be more interactive and productive in their community, etc. So communities really want to get involved. So task forces and a lot of places you can go online and you can find you can actually do searches and people have done surveys about the top 10 healthiest communities and the most walkable communities. There are subgroups of people who value their health and they're going to look for communities that have a lot of the characteristics that we're going to talk about. You can also go to county commission meetings because that's where the funding for parks and school resources and those sorts of things are also funded. As a clinicians, we can also assess risk factors. Sometimes people just don't even know what are the risk factors for obesity. They think, okay, it's access to McDonald's too much. Well, no, that's not it. <laughs> um, it. Eating solely McDonald's all the time, that's probably not good nutrition. But again, what you're eating or what they're eating is only part of it. We can help educate school counselors and teachers and school administrators and sometimes even pediatricians and pediatric nurses, parents about what the risk factors are, and we can assess those in our, our environment and see which ones we can start helping to mitigate. We can assess barriers to mitigating those risk factors. We're going to talk about them. We're going to assess motivations for mitigating the risk factors. Some people may not be motivated. They're very happy eating what they're eating and, you know, maybe not having the optimal level of health. For those people who are willing to make changes, we can set SMART goals at the individual, family, and community level. We can work with the individuals and help them set specific, measurable, achievable, related, and time-limited goals for what they're doing. And we can do that, for, help families do that as well, and the community. And we're going to look at different interventions, and I want you to think about each intervention in terms of SMART goals. What's the first step that we would need to take to start taking action on this? 
We can help with implementation of goals, monitoring the risk factors in the environment. So we can say, yeah, we're hitting our benchmarks. It seems to be having a good effect. Or, yeah, no, we're, we're missing it. Or, and we also want to monitor protective factors. Just because risk factors don't go just because risk factors go down doesn't mean protective factors necessarily go up and vice versa. Um, if protective factors go up, risk factors may also stay the same, but you may still see improved health. So we want to look at our benchmarks, but we also want to look at those risk and protective factors in order to engage or implement primary prevention in our communities, which means preventing people from ever becoming overweight in the first place. And then we can help evaluate and encourage engagement and goal achievement. We want to look at who's participating. Are there certain cohorts that are participating and certain ones that are falling through the cracks? If so, why? Why are they not engaged? Are we meeting our goals? If so, great. Let's keep doing that. If not, why not? And it's basically like writing a great big old treatment plan for the community or the school, if you're a school counselor. I keep talking about the, the effects of obesity. Obesity itself is related to a whole host of problems in the human body. While body positivity is good, I don't want people to feel ashamed for being the size or the shape that they are, but I also want them to want to be healthy and there's a fine line to navigate there. When people are obese, especially children, they are at increased risk of becoming an adult with obesity. Most of the time, if once you put on the weight, it's harder to take it off. If you've had children, you know how that goes. <laughs> Glucose intolerance and insulin resistance can become pro prominent factors, which can be um, things that lead up to diabetes, type 2 diabetes. We don't want our kids to have to wear around an insulin monitor when they're in middle school or high school because of diabetes. Now, there are certain types of di diabetes, the um, type 1 diabetes, juvenile diabetes, that may not be able to be prevented through diet necessarily. I'm not familiar enough with diabetes. I know type 2 diabetes is generally adult onset, but... Being clinically obese in, can contribute to it. Multiple cancers are associated with being overweight. Being overweight, and let's just jump down to testosterone, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and endometriosis. Being overweight throws your sex hormones all out of whack. So any cancers that are related to sex hormones you stand an increased chance of those cancers when you are obese. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, they're all related with, to um, obesity. Asthma, interestingly enough, I did not know asthma was related to obesity, but they did find that a significant number of people with asthma or people who are, how shall I say this easier, People who are overweight are at a much greater risk for developing asthma than people who are not. Sleep apnea is really common in people who are overweight, especially if they're back sleepers. Uh, one of the things that doctors often prescribe for people who are, have sleep apnea is weight loss. Joint problems 
And think about these poor adolescents. They're already going through growing pains and having difficulty with coordination and all that stuff. But if you put extra pressure on those joints, it can add to joint pain. Gastric reflux, non-alcoholic hepatitis, and back pain. None of those things sound good. You know, I really would think as a parent, you know, I don't want my kid to have to be dealing with these things when they are real young. Mental health consequences of obesity, anxiety and depression. Obesity can impact levels of serotonin and norepinephrine and to a certain impact, I can't talk today, to a certain extent, dopamine. Likewise, anxiety and depression can cause people to eat because they are upset, eat as, as a coping strategy, which can contribute to obesity. So, you know, they are almost inextricable. Low self-esteem, if there is body shaming, and you know that teenagers and kids can be really mean, so it may contribute to low self-esteem. The media is still very divided, if you will, on promoting people of a healthy weight. Lower perceived quality of life, they're at higher risk of being bullied, And they are at a higher risk of experiencing stigma and discrimination. When we're talking about kids, that could be not getting chosen for to be on a dodgeball team or or be on the cheerleading squad or whatever it is that's important to them because of their weight. So what can we do? That's kind of what you're here for. Use established guidelines to routinely assess children's health literacy. And I've Started talking about that a lot, especially since I realized that only 12% of people are health literate. What do children know? What do people know? Adults even, their caregivers, the teachers, the school counselors. What do we know about what it takes to be healthy and stay healthy? What do we know about nutrition? I was at a conference on Thursday, and a dietitian was lecturing, and she said, okay, now talking to the whole group, Who can tell me what the macronutrients are? And you could have heard a pin drop. Um, And your macronutrients are your proteins, your carbohydrates, and your fats. But nobody in there either was willing to say anything. I was in the buffet line, so I wasn't going (laughs) to offer myself. But uh, it was interesting that these professional clinicians, you know, you think they have master's degrees. You would assume they know all about nutrition too, but we don't. Not everybody does. Sleep. We need to assess sleep because there's a high correlation between sleep deprivation and obesity. My little soapbox here. Children, even in high school, need 8 to 10 hours of sleep. Now think about, if you've got teenagers, think about whether they're getting 8 to 10 hours of sleep. My girl does most of the time, as long as she doesn't keep her dog in her room. My boy, not so much. And it's like pulling teeth to get them to go to bed sometimes or to get them to get up. And it's really important to educate them about the importance of sleep. Physical activity versus sedentary behavior. We want to know what are youth doing? What types of activities are they engaging in or are they willing to engage in? We want to get a pulse on their mental health. If we see that there's a lot of depression or a lot of anxiety, then that's probably going to contribute to overeating or undereating, which can contribute to health problems. Coping skills. 
do the kids that we're working with in our school, in our practice, what kind of coping skills do they have, if any? And what's their self-esteem like? Now, who does this assessment? Well, if you're a school counselor, maybe you're able to do it there, and that would be super wonderful. You may not be able to do individual assessments, but you may be able to get a broad strokes view of what's going on at the school. Pediatricians are supposed to see kids at least once a year, so the nurse at the pediatrician's office could do this. The school nurse or the health teacher, especially the health teacher, is in a prime position to assess all these different things. Preschool teachers and your average caregiver, any of these people are in a place where they can assess all of these things if they're provided the right tools. And a lot of it comes down to making simple tools available to them that are check blocks or fillable online surveys or things that they're willing to take that may not take a lot of time so they can monitor what's going on with the children that they're working with. We want to assess the risk factors in the environment. Parenting and primary caregiver influences for childhood obesity. Conditions that promote sedentary or less active lifestyles that we may see. Reliance on cars. If you live, most of us live in places where we have to drive the car to go to the grocery store. We have to drive the car to go to work. We have to drive the car to go to school. There's a lot of reliance on cars. People don't ride their bikes anymore. Getting off the street that I live on on a bike has taken your life into your own hands because there's no, um, there's no shoulder and there's no sidewalks. Increased time watching TV or on computers. And this can also include mobile devices. Now, one of the cool things you can do here, I'm just going to put that out there, a lot of the gyms will have TVs that you can watch while you're walking on a treadmill, or you can bring your tablet and sit on one of the sitting bikes, the recumbent bikes, and watch a movie. For kids, you can pair it. If parents want to, they could pair screen time with exercise time. And you can also get affordable home equipment now, but that's expensive for a lot of people. Time and financial constraints can adversely affect caregivers' ability to provide healthy food options. When you're driving around town, it's a little bit better now. There are some places where you can get healthy fast food, but a lot of the places that you go to get fast food, it's more of a comfort food. It tends to be highly processed, high in fat, low in nutritional density. But some parents, you know, they come home from work, they're picking the kid up from football practice, it's 7 o'clock, they need to get them something to eat. They don't have, if they cooked, it would be 9 p.m., and that's when the kid's supposed to go to bed. We need to help people figure out how can we make healthy food options more available. Those of us who spend a lot of time in the gym, we do food prep, and I do my food prep on Sundays. Everything is prepared with the exception of things like you know, pasta sometimes because I don't like reheated pasta, but everything that takes a lot of time to prepare is pre-prepared and in the refrigerator. Then I just have to combine things to make meals for the family for the week. Financial constraints can also adversely affect caregivers' ability because, unfortunately, healthy food is a lot more expensive than highly processed unhealthy food. We need to work in our communities with local farms and even grocery stores, to try to make healthy food more affordable. I know 
I have alerts set on my phone when certain types of produce go on sale because my kids will go through fruit like nobody's business. Overconsumption of high-fat, high-calorie foods, they're good, but they're all, they also tend to be comfort foods. If people are eating, what's the saying? If they're living to eat instead of eating to live, then they may be at more risk for overconsumption of high-fat, high-calorie foods. One dietitian I worked with, I loved her to death, uh, partly because she gave me permission to eat what I wanted, but she came in and talked to one of my uh, stress management classes, and she said, you know, y'all, don't cut anything unless it's going to make you violently ill. Don't cut anything out of your diet because that just sets you up to binge on it. If you want something that is high fat, high calorie, like pizza or chocolate, okay, do it in moderation. Maybe don't buy a whole pizza and bring it home where you can eat on it all night long. Go out and get a piece of pizza or find ways where you can get smaller portion sizes, but allow yourself to have that occasionally. Biology and genetics come from the parents, and that can also contribute to childhood obesity. Some people tend to carry their weight in different places, which again goes back to body positivity. Just because somebody carries their weight in a certain place doesn't necessarily mean that they are obese. And we need to reflect and respect on the parameters of what health is. Another little side note here, the BMI is the um, body mass index, which is your weight and your height comparison. That's junk, okay? That's junk. Because you can have somebody who's a bodybuilder who has a BMI that is way too freaking high, but they've got 2% body fat because their weight compared to their height is not within that table realm. A much better um, image, a picture of somebody's physical health and their overall obesity is a body fat measure. And they have some really awesome scales out there that you can get for pretty inexpensively that give you an idea of your body composition. And that's really what we're looking at for health. It's not your height times your weight or divided by your weight or however they do BMI, but we want to look at muscle to fat. What's the ratio there? And allow people to feel comfortable in their own skin. Breastfeeding for less than six months has also been highly correlated with obesity in children. You can talk about a lot of different reasons why that might be, but the research out there is pretty indicative. However, some people can't breastfeed, so I don't want to shame those parents who, for whatever reason, can't breastfeed their infants. We do want to be aware that that is a risk factor. It's not a be-all, end-all. And lack of sufficient sleep. If a parent or guardian is not getting sufficient sleep, then they're going to ha not have the energy, probably, to make the meals and do everything that maybe could help prevent obesity. When we're working with adults, primary caregivers, we do want to educate them about some of these factors and then help them figure out how to mitigate them. Like, okay, so your kid loves to play video games. How can we make this workable? When my son was little, it predated the Wii. That's... <laughs> Wow, a long time ago, but 
he had this awesome game that we plugged into the TV and it was a Star Wars game and we had these little lightsabers and we would fight the different Star Wars characters. I can tell you I have never been so sore in my entire life playing with him. We would both finish and we would be drenched in sweat. It was an awesome game and then it broke. Um, but Hasbro had put it out and they never put a new one out, but I was very dis disappointed. And the Xbox 360's version of the Star Wars game just never measured up. I digress. There are video games that people can play that involve movement. Caregiver mental illness, especially depression, can also contribute to caregivers wanting to eat high-fat, high-carbohydrate foods, be sedentary, and not cook. A lack of modeling of positive nutrition and movement from the parents and caregivers can also contribute to childhood obesity. If they never exercise, the kids are going, well, you don't. Why should I? Lack of knowledge about nutrition or cooking. A lot of people these days don't know how to cook. They don't have any concept of nutrition. If you ask them what a carbohydrate is, they just kind of look at you with this blank stare on their face. Uh, helping people understand nutrition is important, but also helping them learn how to cook. And if you're resourceful, you can go on YouTube and find some videos. But finding easy videos is a little bit more difficult. You don't want to start out with, uh, I don't know, I don't do a lot of videos, but you don't want to start out with something that's going to be really complicated. Encouraging people to, you know, test the waters. Take a community cooking class or something in order to start learning how to cook different things get together with a group of people in your neighborhood and alternate who cooks dinner on a particular night so if you've got five people then you go to different people's houses each night so you only have to cook one out of every five nights it's a doable thing if you like your neighbors avoid coercive clean your plate rules when i was growing up this was still a big thing you know you need you can't get up from the t table until you've cleaned your plate well, that teaches kids to eat past when they're full, and that's not what we want to teach them. If they're not hungry anymore, teach them how to package their food and put it in the refrigerator. You know, it doesn't mean that the food has to go to waste. They can eat it later. It can be warmed up. There's nothing wrong with leftovers and even leftover leftovers. Mindless eating is another environmental factor when we have the television on while we're eating and we're not paying attention to it when we are reading i know when i was in college i used to be very guilty of this i would study and eat at the same time it's important to be mindful when you're eating that doesn't mean you have to sit at the dinner table and stare at each other with these blank looks on your face and not talk but you do want to be cognizant of what you're doing so you know when you feel full it takes about 20 minutes for your brain to register that your stomach is full. I tend to eat too quickly a lot of times, so I've generally finished dinner in under 20 minutes. I've learned to slow down a little bit, but also wait from at least 30 minutes before I go back for a second helping because generally after 30 minutes, all those messengers have kicked in and my body's going, no, you're done. Over-normalizing growth-related weight gain. We've all... If you've had kids or when you were younger, you probably heard the term, quote, baby fat. Most kids will grow 
or get a little bit of weight on them, and then they'll have a growth spurt. So they, you know, get a little bit wider, and then they get a lot taller. That's a normal process that the body kind of goes through. However, we don't want to over-normalize it where we say, oh, you know, that, that's just baby fat, but the baby fat never goes away. Do recognize that it's important to normalize uh, growth-related weight gain for kids so they don't get freaked out about it, though, because I'm finding that despite the body positivity movement, it seems to be more polar now. You're either in the body positivity movement or they are super shaming people. We want to make sure that youth feel comfortable in their own skin. Caffeine consumption during pregnancy is also linked to obesity in children. And yes, a few things that on the, in the chat room, ramen noodles are very cheap and they're awful for you. They're really good, but they're awful for you. Yes, obesity is linked to socioeconomic status in some cases. Um, low SES tends to have more difficulty affording the healthier foods. They tend to have less time to prepare the healthier foods. Those two things contributed. Plus, people of low SES tend to be under more stress and tend to have a higher proportion of anxiety and depression, which is also a risk factor for obesity, which is why SES may be linked to obesity. It doesn't mean that you can, somebody who's a low SES is just doomed to be obese. We do want to help them mitigate any obstacles to a healthy lifestyle. Individual influences. The, what we reward in our children is going to influence what they do. So how can we make nutrition rewarding? Well, cook tasty food. I remember the first time I tried an artichoke. It was also the last time I tried an artichoke, by the way. It was probably the grossest thing I had ever tasted in my life. Now, maybe it was overdone. I don't know. I just haven't ever had an occasion to eat an artichoke again, nor have I wanted to buy one at the store to try again. Let's cook tasty foods. And that was one of the big brouhaha's during the Obama administration when they started trying to do healthy lunches. Well, you know, bravo, let's try to do healthy lunches, but let's make it something kids are willing to eat. A lot of kids are averse to the texture of things like kiwi. Let's start, let's give them apples. Most kids are good with apples and bananas and things that they're used to eating. Let's make them tasty. And then we can start integrating and injecting a new food here and there. Just try this. If you don't like it, no harm, no foul. And we can go from there. A lot of foods, I'll give you the example of asparagus. I don't like store-bought asparagus at all. It has a really strong bitter taste, maybe. I don't know what taste, aftertaste that store-bought asparagus has. But I can pick fresh asparagus from my garden and eat it raw. Or steamed is even better, but sometimes I eat it raw. Because when it's fresher, it has a different taste. Same thing with collards and a lot of your green vegetables. Make palatable snacks available. If, you know, kids are going to snack sometimes because they get hungry. And that's okay. Baby carrots, chopped fruit, grapes, whatever you can find that's a healthy snack is going to be better than cookies or potato chips or something that has 150 calories per handful. 
figure out how to make exercise rewarding because some people just don't like to exercise. I know my son hates it. He just, my daughter, on the other hand, she's at the gym every morning with me. My son is like prying him out of his chair. What can we do? Well, play with the dog. If you've got a dog, that's a good thing. If you don't have a dog, find a neighbor's dog that you can walk. Uh, go to the park. You know, take the kids out to the park and say, you know, you can sit around, you can walk around, you can do whatever, but you're not going to be sitting in front of a screen for the next hour. We have in Nashville, and I know some other places, we have trampoline gyms, which are great if you can afford them. Not everybody can afford going to those types of places, but they're air-conditioned, and it's basically this great big warehouse that is, the whole floor is nothing but trampolines and pits full of foam that you can jump in, and it's just fun to bounce around in. Exercise does not have to be going to the gym and doing the elliptical for an hour or taking a class or lifting weights. It's movement, anything that gets your heart rate up. That can also include cleaning and doing yard work, but that's generally not rewarding for kids either. Interests. What are the kids interested in? If they're interested in computers and you know, they're not interested in outside things. It can be a little bit more difficult to get them moving. Geocaching is something that was popular a few years ago. I don't know if it still is, but that was fun. You would use coordinates to go out and find the geolocation, to go out and find treasures that people had hid around a park or around a city. And you would take something out of the treasure chest and you would put something else in for some, the next person to find. Pokemon Go got a lot of bad press, but it did get people moving. Martial arts. Some kids are more than willing to do martial arts because that's something that looks cool. And like I talked about earlier, an Xbox or a Wii or some type of video game, you know, it's still a screen, so people don't feel like they're going to go through withdrawals, but it makes them move. Any of those things can be really awesome. Back when I was younger, and some of you may not even remember American Bandstand, um, <laughs> but that used to be on every Saturday morning, and I can remember to this day getting up and dancing with American Bandstand. Unsupervised time is another individual influence. Generally, when kids are unsupervised, most kids are going to be sedentary. And peer values. If peers do not value health, nutrition, exercise, then youth are probably not going to value it. We need to make it fun. We need to motivate them to want to be healthy. Other individual influences, health. If somebody's in poor health because of genetics, if they got Crohn's disease, if they have something else going on, it may be harder for them to get the kind of physical activity. We need to be sensitive to that. Genetics. Hypothyroid, they're finding that a much greater percentage of youth suffer from some level of hypothyroid than they once thought. Diabetes is another risk factor for obesity, as is yo-yo dieting. 80% of 10-year-olds have been on at least one diet. 10 years old, that's fifth grade, fourth grade for some. Just kind of let that sink in for a second. They've been on at least one diet because they thought they were too fat. When we significantly restrict our calories, our body thinks there's a famine, our base metabolic rate drops, which can contribute to increased weight gain when we stop restricting our eating. Plus, 
the eating that we were doing that caused us to be overweight in the first place, if we haven't changed those habits, then when we return to that behavior, guess what? We're going to gain the weight back. And insufficient sleep, as I talked about earlier, is a huge risk factor for overeating. It throws, when your circadian rhythms are out of whack, it throws off your ghrelin and leptin, which are your hunger and satiation hormones. It tends to make people foggier, crankier. They want to eat to help them stay awake. Uh, they want to eat to self-soothe. There's a lot of reasons we try to eat besides just hunger. And sociocultural factors include income and social status, which we already talked about. It's important that people have a social support network to reduce stress, increase supervision of children, and the availability of activities and healthy food. Not every parent is going to be able to be home when Johnny gets off the bus. If there is a social support network in the neighborhood, or if there is the availability of after-school care for children, then they have increased supervision where they can engage in some sort of movement and activity and probably will be presented with healthier food choices. We talked about the affordability of healthy foods. We can connect, oh, community gardening. That is another wonderful project. Not only does, you can Google ecotherapy. It's an up-and-coming intervention, but... Community gardening, you can go to an apartment complex or a neighborhood and find a piece of land that belongs to the whole community. And if obviously if they agree, then you can plot out certain sections for each family and they can have their own little mini garden. Or you can plot it out and one family can grow carrots and one family can grow this and one family can grow that, however they want to do it. But then they're growing their own food so they have access to theoretically healthy, organic food literally at their fingertips. And we want to look at food marketing. What is the media telling us? I know at night, all I see are commercials for fried foods and pizzas and things that are way too calorie dense and highly processed. And distribution. Get with different companies and even the big chains like McDonald's and talk about portion sizes. How big of a portion size do we really need? And for us, I mean, even going to restaurants, the plate of food that they give you, your, your stomach, when it's not full, is about the size of your closed fist. Next time you order a plate of food or when you sit down to lunch today, take your closed fist and hold it up next to the food that you're getting ready to put in, put in your body. It's probably three to four times the size of your closed fist. That's probably way more than you need. But we've gotten used to eating these huge portions. We need to engage by collaborating with school leaders to address risk factors that influence childhood obesity, including student demographics. If you have a lot of low SES families, we want to increase the availability of healthy food, after-school care, and um availability for lower income families that way children can come they can get breakfast where i came from in florida children could come they could get breakfast before school started then they had school lunch and then the ones who stayed for after school care also got a healthy snack before they went home we know for them at least for them they had two and a half healthy meals that day the after-school care also provided for not only the food, but also, you know, the kids were involved in games and activities, but they also got help with homework. 
which also reduced stress and increased success. Work with schools on school policies regarding their food environment. Make sure that healthy snacks are available. A lot of schools have vending machines. We want to make sure that there are options in there that are healthy, preferably only healthy options, but that depends on the vendor. I would love to see schools offer options for packed lunch refrigeration. Oh my gosh, that used to be the biggest challenge for me when my son went to public school because, you know, you can't pack them peanut butter sandwiches anymore. That's a no-go. What do you pack? And even if you put it in a insulated thing, it generally is just, it's still not the right temperature by the time you get to lunchtime at 12 o'clock or whatever it is. If they had options where the kids could come by the cafeteria and drop off their lunch, that would be so awesome. And look at the affordability and palatability of school lunches. Let's do food substitutions. Don't just scrap pizza day on Friday. I used to love pizza day. But instead, offer French bread pizzas that have vegetables and cheese on them instead of the processed meats. Encourage children to recognize that simple food substitutions can make their favorite food healthier and still be yummy. Talk with schools about increasing physical activity, making sure that there are physical activity requirements. One of the things that irritates me to no end is when I see teachers canceling recess because one or two kids were acting out in the classroom or they were having difficulty controlling their classroom. And I'm thinking to myself, well, the kids are telling you they've got way too much pent-up energy. And what you're doing is telling them, no, since you're acting like you've got too much energy, you have to sit still even longer. Working against yourself. We want to make sure that kids have physical activity. They've actually shown that in middle and high school, it's a little bit more difficult with the younger kids sometimes to get them back on task. But if children are allowed, if youth are allowed stretch breaks in class every 15 to 20 minutes, you know, the teacher stops lecturing and goes, okay, everybody just get up for a second and stretch and, you know, shake it out and then we'll proceed again with the lecture, that their concentration was greatly improved. They, didn't ha they weren't walking away from their desk. It wasn't breaking up a bunch of time. But they were getting up and getting their blood moving again. In education, health teachers can really focus on health literacy and teaching coping skills. Heck, for that matter, that can bleed over into other classes like math, where in, you're doing mathematical equations, especially the lower math, when you start working with fractions, talk about measuring, uh, measuring food, weighing food, and talking about that sort of thing. In English, read articles about health and wellness instead of solely fiction-related stuff. There are a lot of things that we can advocate for. We need to be sensitive, like Jeremiah points out, that schools don't have a huge budget to handle a lot of this stuff. So we need to find ways to make it affordable for them. And that's where going to the county commission is one of those steps that we can take and encourage parents to go to the county commission and let the county commission know what you need. There are some gyms, and I, don't, I won't market them right now, but there are some gyms that are making 
membership free over the summer to teenagers. And that's really awesome. Yes, Renee, that's the one I was thinking of. Engage neighborhoods to improve community level risk factors that influence childhood obesity. Help them find safe places to exercise. Where I came from, the mall used to open up at 6 a.m. for people to walk. So they had an indoor air-conditioned place that was safe to walk instead of walking outside in the dark or wherever. That's one option. In increasing the safety of neighborhoods, increasing the safety of parks. In communities, encourage the modeling of healthy behaviors, including not eating as much fried food and takeout, reducing alcohol consumption and smoking, improving health literacy, and encouraging family-focused exercise, you know, different family festivals where families can get out and exercise together, or bowling. Yes, bowling's exercise. It's movement where the family can go and play on a team together. In improve health literacy with flyers, local newspaper columns, and even a daily segment on your local news media, preferably the evening or the morning, not the noon, because... The viewership is a lot lower for noon, but wherever you can get it out there and start educating people about concepts related to health literacy and obesity prevention. Library sections. The librarian can set out a whole shelf that is the specialty topic of the week and have books already selected so people don't have to go try to figure out where in the Dewey Decimal System they're going to find it on nutrition, on exercise, on whatever. And you can also do presentations at libraries. And like I said before class, this is another great way of doing community service and advocacy and beneficence, if you want to get ethics in there, but also advertising. Because if people come to one of your presentations and they're like, oh, that person's pretty easy to listen to or talk to or seems to know what they're talking about, then you stand a greater chance of getting referrals from them. Engage and collaborate with community stakeholders to develop, promote, and implement comprehensive primary prevention interventions for childhood obesity. The county commission can work on building parks and adding sidewalks and increasing funding to the schools. Law enforcement can increase community-oriented policing around parks and in neighborhoods so kids can actually go outside and ride their bikes and parents aren't freaked out. Schools want to look at activity and nutrition policies and resources. And counselors and health teachers can teach healthy coping strategies and health literacy. Community centers, libraries, and parks can offer education and just activities for people to get out and get moving and get out from in front of the, the screen. Physicians can provide health education even those things that are playing in their lobby while you're sitting there forever waiting for your appointment, if they're done well, can be educational. <clears throat> Vendors, talk with them to include healthier options in machines. And that may be switching to pretzels and peanuts from, you know, potato chips and Cheetos or something. It's a step in the right direction. Grocery stores. Have them promote healthy food choices. One of the grocery stores in our town always has somebody at a kiosk that is cooking and doing a recipe. And, you know, they're right there front and center. Of course, they want you to taste it. But it's always a healthy recipe. And it's something that's easy to cook. Restaurants 
talk with them about portion sizes and food options. It may not be doable with some of your fast food chains, but you may be able to go to some of the local mom and pop restaurants and convince them, which, you know, lower portion sizes means lower overhead for them, but convince them to start making more reasonable portion sizes for children. Malls can be open early for walking and have kids play areas. And even talk to health insurance providers in your local area. They may cover um, exercise and they may help get discounts on gym memberships. They may reduce premiums for proof of participation in wellness programs and maintaining a healthy body fat percentage. Again, not BMI. Don't let them go there, but a healthy body fat. Incentivize it for adults. Adults are interested in money, time, because we don't have enough, time off, that's always good. Movie tickets. You may offer businesses promotion for participation in community projects and or model programs they may have. So businesses get free advertising if they're participating or have it, or they have a good wellness program. Free childcare is usually a big one. A monthly caregiver's night out can be a great thing. Some of the gyms around here do that, and the kids can come in and, you know, participate in some non-harmful activities. Clothing discounts. When you lose weight, then you often have to buy a whole lot of new clothes. Consignment shops can help with clothing discounts. I've even seen some consignment shops do a one-to-one exchange. You... Uh, turn in your size, whatever, and I will give you your the same thing, roughly. You know, you're turning in a pair of jeans. I'll give you a similar pair of jeans for free. And that works out really well for them. Uh, and I'm sure there are other things you can feel free to share. Kristen shared that her district pays back half of their gym membership if they work out at least t- 10 times each month. There are lots of ways to incentivize. Incentivize for kids. Now, this the first one's going to be, you know, whoa, the school's going to freak out. But if we can get it, it would be great. Days off from school. If kids are participating in the health and wellness program, they're probably going to be healthier, so they're probably not going to be taking their sick days that they could. So giving them, quote, unquote, a free day off from school every quarter if they're participating in a wellness program. Make sure nutritional meals are palatable. Have options for active study hall, like recumbent bikes that they can sit on and pedal while they're reading their textbook, or recorded lectures. You know, teachers can record themselves so easily now that students can listen to while they're walking on a treadmill. That way they can study in a way that's meaningful for them. Think about walking desks. That would be really expensive to implement, but encouraging kids to get walking desks for at home may be helpful if they're doing a lot of reading. If they're doing a lot of mousing, not so much because it really cuts down on efficiency. And then talk about token economies to earn things like video game time. If you exercise for an hour, then you'll get a token for 25 minutes of screen time or whatever. Sometimes parents don't want to go that far. Develop interventions that are universally applied as early as possible in multiple settings. So in infancy, pediatricians can start educating and encouraging parents to move. Mommy and Me classes are great. Mommy and Me clubs are wonderful. Daycares, you know, we want 
pediatricians to consult with daycares and make sure infants and toddlers are getting a good amount of activity. Provide videos, yes, that seems counterintuitive to movement, but provide videos online that are available in little snippets, you know, little TEDx talks, so to speak, that encourage people to participate in activities or take better care of their health. And even fitness centers are often open to hosting mommy and me classes and things to help children get in better health. School-age children. You know, school, we've already talked about interventions that can be applied there. After-school care, fitness centers. Again, not everybody likes going to a gym, but if you can make the gym fun. And when I say fitness centers, I'm meaning Taekwondo, Dojangs, all the way to Planet Fitness type places. Anywhere where kids can exercise. Roller rinks, um, what's it, bowling, batting cages, whatever it is. It should be targeted towards multiple behaviors, including stress management, eating habits and choices, exercise and activity choices, and sleep and health-related behaviors. We should implement using multiple approaches, including handouts, festivals and activities where we're there and we're handing out and we're talking to people at our booths. We're having festivals and activities that encourage activity. Workplace wellness fairs, videos, and homework that requires caregiver participation, such as work with your caregiver to create a healthy menu for the, a week and cook it and report back about how it went. You know, generally, you're going to need caregiver supervision while you're cooking, but bonus for the caregiver, they don't have to cook that week. And make sure that all activities are inclusive of the caregivers of the child. We don't want to just have them learning this stuff at school and then, you know, they go home and... It flies out the window. We want to try to get the caregivers involved. Advocate for the establishment of a comprehensive population-level surveillance system to monitor risk and protective conditions for childhood obesity, including monitoring, monitoring for the prevalence of healthy weights, physical activity, healthy eating, adequate quality sleep, mood disorders, adverse childhood experiences, which we know contributes to obesity, depression, anxiety, yada, yada. Socioeconomic factors such as poverty, we want to try to mitigate that, and prevalence and duration of breastfeeding. Evaluate the effectiveness and sustainability of school and community-based primary prevention initiatives on community and individual organizational basis. Participation, cost, and outcomes. So look at the schools and look at what kind of participation you're getting how much it's costing, and your return on your investment, basically, to see if what you're doing is worth the, what you're putting into it. Obesity prevention involves educating the public as well as community stakeholders about nutrition, exercise, stress management, and sleep hygiene. Motivating healthy eating and exercise behaviors by having caregivers model it, as well as our community members model it. We want to have teachers model it. We want to have um, doctors model it. It always cracks me up when I go to my cardiologist and, you know, he's probably 60 pounds overweight and it's all carried in his belly. And I'm like, okay, I know that's stress and cortisol and stuff, but it just seems counterintuitive to me um, that something that's such a high risk factor for heart disease would, he would be reflecting. 
reducing stress and improving coping in children and their caregivers, making healthy food more accessible, affordable, and appealing. And as an aside, you can look up hydroponics, and there's something called the Cracky Method. You can Google it. There are videos on it. It doesn't require any electricity. It's basically... Um, passive hydroponics, but people can grow things inside if they want to, or they can grow things outside without having to have access to a lot of water, which can get expensive, and it can be a lot of fun, and it's a lot cleaner than digging in the dirt like I do. Creating environments that are conducive to healthy eating and activity, including parks, community centers, malls, schools, vendors, sidewalks, in having sidewalks put down, and increasing community policing. One of our local community parks, every morning, as soon as the park opens, there is a bicycle cop that rides around. It's got a um, jogging loop that's about two miles, and he just kind of rides around that and keeps an eye on everybody until it gets a little bit more active. But it makes me feel more secure when I'm out there, you know, by myself with my music blaring. <laughs> Adults can make their own decisions regarding maintaining an unhealthy weight and health behaviors. If they want to do it, more power to them. Children are cognitively unable to make informed decisions, so it's up to caregivers, schools, and medical personnel and the media to help them make decisions that will enhance their health and self-esteem. Now, you can argue about the empowerment here, but children think in black and white terms. Young children have difficulty thinking about you know, what I do today is going to, may impact me in 10 years. Um, and they may have difficulty understanding the concepts of diabetes and things like that. It's up to us to educate them and motivate them to want to make the right choices instead of just saying, well, whatever you want to do. We need to make sure we're providing them the resources and the information. Children who are obese are at an increased risk of pediatric health problems, stigma, and bullying, as well as becoming an adult who is obese. I saw a bunch of things on here. I don't want to let them go away. Um, dog parks. Great suggestion, Tracy. Uh, dog, dog, dog parks are a great place for people to go out and exercise. And kids often love going out there because kids love dogs and dogs love kids. So it's a win-win for everybody. If you have walk-to-school days or bike-to-school days that get rewarded, that can be really awesome. If you have anything that you can reward that's healthy is super awesome. And trying to figure out a way to do it within the school district's budget is always a little bit challenging. But sometimes there are big organizations like Dollar General or Walmart or somewhere that's willing to donate prizes or tokens that could be raffled off you just have to ask. I agree, Dana. Growing one's food is fun, filling, and nearly free. It does take time, though. You can't plant a carrot seed and expect you're going to have carrots next week. So it takes a little bit of planning, but it can be really rewarding when you pull that puppy out of the ground and you're like, I did that. And sugar is an additive in almost everything on the shelves. I've noticed even more now that... I won't buy anything that has high fructose corn syrup in it. So I'm actually looking for stuff with sugar now, which I never thought I would say. But of the things that I'm looking at, I'm trying to choose the lesser of, of two evils, if you will, when I do buy things that are um, pre-made at the store like bread. 
And some of our meats are less healthy now. Yes, that's true. Corn's being used in a lot of stuff. And I read an article the other day that they tested some big name cereals and even ones that weren't wheat, some that were made of oats and found that every single one of them had levels higher than the FDA guidelines for certain pesticides in the processed cereal. So I kind of went through and cleaned out my pantry. <laughs> but um, we do need to be aware of that, but that's a whole different issue. And remember that gut health plays a significant role in mental health. If they're eating healthfully, they're going to be more likely to be able to maintain that gut-brain axis in a healthy condition. For those of you who grow your own food, um, pumpkin, a lot of us grow pumpkin because we like pumpkin pies and that sort of thing, but pumpkins, at least where I'm at, have a whole host of bug problems. What I've found, though, is butternut squash is every bit as tasty, if not tastier, in my opinion, than pumpkin, and it has more meat and less seed, and it is pretty much resilient to any of those pests that pumpkin are susceptible to. A little too late in the year probably to plant it, but uh, for next year, um, bear that in mind if you want something pumpkin-like. And I use it as a replacement, butternut squash as a replacement for pumpkin when I make pies or casseroles or I just eat it straight. We make custards and stuff. Alrighty, everybody, have a great day, and I will talk to you um, next time. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.